So we find ourselves at the end of a six-week stint. Um, what was going to be a trip through chapters one and two of Ephesians got cut a little bit shorter. Um, after this week, I'll be taking a short break. We'll have some other really gifted teachers from our church sharing the word with us. And then a little bit later in September, we'll come back and we'll pick up with Ephesians. So today, though, we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 2. So if you have your copy of your Bible with you, let's go ahead and open there. We're in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So let's go to prayer before we read the word. Father, this is a relatively familiar passage, so we pray that you won't let us take it lightly. We pray that you will help us to see it with fresh eyes and to see all the truth that you have there for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So one thing I want to preface today's message with is um, we're going to do a kind of a two-part series even though we're taking a break, so when we pick back up. Uh, I want to talk about today receiving grace. So as believers in Jesus, we have received grace. And we continue to receive grace. But there's also another part to this text. This text also emphasizes the fact that we, as recipients of grace, need to be willing to give grace. Okay? And I think that's something that it's easy to miss when we read this passage. Because this passage generally is taken as a salvation invitation type of passage. But if you'll read down through there, you'll notice that it's actually speaking to people who have received grace already, who are believers, who are Christians, and it's re-emphasizing the fact that they are saved by grace. So as we're reading through this, I'd like you to try to follow along and note those points. I'll let you do it. I'll, I'll try to read straight through without pointing those things out. But note the points in there where it's emphasizing the fact, where it shows the fact, rather, that the readers that Paul has in mind here are not unbelievers, but they're people who have already received God's grace. So verse 1 of chapter 2 says this, And you, being dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the pattern of this world, according to the ruler of the authority of the air, that is the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. In whom also we all walked formerly in the lusts of the flesh, lusts of our flesh, excuse me, doing the will of the flesh and of the mind. And we were children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, on account of the great love with which he loved us, and while we were dead in trespasses, he raised us together in Christ, for by grace you have been saved, and he raised you together with him, and he seated you in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus, in order that he might show in the age to come the surpassing riches of his grace upon whom he shared those things with us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not from works, so that no one shall boast. For we are his 
creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he previously prepared, excuse me, which God previously prepared in order that we might walk in them. So if you'll notice as you read down through there, there's a lot of times he says, for by grace you have been saved. And we formerly walked. And you formerly walked. So this passage primarily is a passage meant for believers. It's a passage meant to be thought through and considered for believers. So the question then becomes why? Now, the other, there's kind of two factors that go into how I've decided to, to speak the next two times I speak. One, this is a great passage for sharing the gospel. It's probably one of the most compact places where you can walk somebody through the gospel to help lead them to Christ. However, it's also not the main purpose. So what I'm going to do today is talk about receiving grace. That is to say, how we can look at this from the perspective of sharing the gospel with other people. Then the next time we speak, I'm going to look back through here and try to demonstrate why Paul is re-emphasizing the gospel with the Ephesian believers. Because there were some specific problems he was dealing with. And it's a good reminder for us that we're supposed to be gospel-centered. As believers, we don't just embrace the gospel and move forward. We're constantly thinking about remembering and thinking about that gospel. So I want to talk about this in kind of three moves. First, I want to talk about the fact that both irreligious and religious people need God's grace. Both irreligious and religious people need God's grace. And we're going to see this in verses 1 through 3. Then what we're going to see is that God offers grace through faith. And then we're going to see God's purpose in giving grace. So those are the three main things we're going to accomplish today. So first, let's jump in in verses 2, 1 through 3, that both irreligious and religious people need God's grace. Now, for many of you, you may have been like me, where you spent a lot of time reading through this in your Christian life, and you didn't notice that there's a difference in the first three verses between you and we. If you've been tracking with this series, you know I've talked about that before. This is where it really starts to pay off. So in verse 1, he says, notice, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then in verse 3, he says, in which we also all walked. Do you see? So there's a you group and a we group. Right Now, we pointed this out before. We even saw this up in verse 13, where he says this, so that we might be to the praise of his glory. That is the first to hope in the Christ. So he defines in verse 13 who the we are. The we are the first to hope in the Messiah. The you are a different group. So who were the first people in history to put their hope in the Messiah? Class? Israel, the Jewish people. Yes, and what we find in this text is there's a distinction made between Gentile believers, that's most of us, we're Gentiles, and the Jewish believers. And there was this conflict running between the Jewish and Gentile believers in the early church. 
And so in verse 1, he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then in verse 3, he says, and we also were dead in our trespasses and sins. And it's really kind of interesting because there's a bit of a parallel here. And I'm not saying this is what Paul immediately was thinking about. But there's a kind of parallel in our culture today. The first group is basically irreligious. They're Gentiles. They're affected by not affected by the Judeo-Christian ethic, as we might say today. And then you have the religious people, the Jewish people, who have basically grown up under a Judeo-Christian ethic. And it's very parallel to some of us today. Some of us who are believers today came from a completely secular background. And some of us, like me, I grew up as a missionary's kid. So I grew up in a very, very Judeo-Christian ethic. And what Paul is going to say is, guess what? No matter what your background is, whether you come from an irreligious background or a deeply religious background, you need God's grace. You need God's grace. So let's, let's how he sees it. So let's, let's take a look at how he says this. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, And you, that is Gentiles, you were dead in your trespasses and your sins, in which you formerly walked according to the pattern of this world according to the ruler of the authority of the air that is the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience so he says of the people who are irreligious the gentiles you didn't grow up hearing about jehovah god you were living in your trespasses and sins but look what he says you are being influenced by you are being You are walking according to the pattern of this world. Now, as a kid who grew up in a family that wasn't legalistic, but around a lot of legalism, I learned to kind of be a little bit uncomfortable when people would say, oh, that's worldly. But that's actually how this text talks about it. He says, if you grew up in an irreligious background, you grew up... According and you walked according to the pattern of this world. And when the New Testament uses the term world, it's often being contrasted to God's order. So you have God's order over here, and then you have the world over here, which is standing up against and contrary to God. And that world order, as we see it here, is defined even more clearly. It's not neutral. They are walking according to the pattern of this world, according to the ruler of the authority of the air. That is to say, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. Paul could have used one word to say this. It's Satan. It's Satan. He is the ruler of the authority of the air. And he is the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So this world system is in fact influenced by and ultimately controlled by satanic influences. Brothers and sisters, there are times as very modern, scientifically minded people that we forget that there's a whole spiritual world out there. That if, if we were to be able to peel back the physical world and see the spiritual reality of, that's out there, 
that it's real and it's influencing the world. It's influencing the world system. And there's times, I think, as believers, we run the risk of acting like anything outside of the Judeo-Christian ethic, the biblical ethic, is neutral. Now, I believe in common grace. I believe that God does allow unsaved people to do some really cool and good things. But ultimately, when we step out from underneath the authority of the scriptures, we are stepping into the realm of Satan. Now, the great part was, what did we learn at the end of the last chapter? Christ conquered that world. He's seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places, and therefore we don't have to fear that realm. However, we should fear its influence. We should fear its influence. So today, if you think back to when you became a Christian, were you irreligious? You might remember what it was like, you should remember what it was like to live under that system. And what a relief it is to come under God's authority. Some of you here today may not know Jesus yet. You are living according to the spirit of this world. And God calls you to repent and give your life to him. And in so doing, come under the rubric of God's authority and no longer fear that world because God has conquered it through Jesus. Now that ultimate conquer is coming, right? But in the meantime, Satan still has an influence in this world. Remember, this culture is not neutral. This culture is not neutral. So the influence of that culture created this lifestyle, this walk, right? That's often in the scriptures, a walk is a life or a lifestyle. It's created this walk in people that is according to the spirit of the air, the spirit who is working in the sons of disobedience, but it's creating this anti-God life. And that's what you Gentiles repented from. And so if you are here today and a believer who came out of a religious, irreligious background, you know exactly what that feels like. So then in verse three though, he switches. He was talking about the you, and now he's gonna talk about the religious in verse three. Look what he says in verse three. In whom also we all walked. So here is sometimes the biggest problem with people who come up in a, let's say, a church or Christian background, is sometimes we have to convince them that they actually need Jesus. Now, that's not our job. That's Jesus' job. That's God's job in the Holy Spirit. But the truth of the matter is, sometimes those of us who are in Christian homes, we don't think that we need Jesus because, well, my parents were Christian. I'm a Christian. I was born that way, so I'm a Christian. I grew up in that family. I've always thought that. But that's not what Paul says here. He says, in whom also we formerly lived our lives. 
So even the religious need God's grace. Even the religious need God's grace. You may be here today and you, you've said your whole life, well, I'm a religious person, I don't have to worry. Look what he says about us, those of us who grew up in those religious backgrounds. In whom also we all formerly lived, by the lusts of the flesh, of our flesh, doing the will of the flesh and of the mind. So you may have grown up in a Christian home, but as a non-believer, you are still controlled by the flesh that wars against God's law. So as humans, the New Testament says we have flesh. And that flesh isn't talking about just the meat on our bones. That's talking about the fact that we are fallen creatures who have these physical impulses and drives that make us want to disobey God. Or to say it another way, we have these drives and impulses that take great impulses and drives that we have and tempt us to use this in anti-God ways. Excuse me. And look at his conclusion. Because it, it seems to me he almost sounds harder on the religious than he does on the irreligious here. Because the irreligious, it's almost like he's not literally excusing them, but he says it's kind of understandable that you lived out your worldview if you didn't grow up under the church. But what he says, and we were children by nature of wrath, even as the rest. Growing up in that religious environment doesn't do anything extra for you when it comes to status with God. What does he say? Children of wrath. That's strong words. And it's by nature. We're children by nature of wrath. So unless God comes in and changes our nature through regeneration... We're in trouble. We're in trouble. So that's the problem. That's the problem. And if you're here today and you're in either of those and you realize, hey, I need God's grace. Let's talk a little bit more about it and then let's talk after the message. I would love to talk with you about that. But if you're here today and you know the gospel, be reminded, be reminded that no matter how much of a, religious background or a good background you came out of, you were just as lost as the worst pagan in the world. You fill in the blank. You fill in the blank for the worst person you know, Jeffrey Dahmer, whatever. You were just as lost as they were. I was just as lost as he was. I love verse four because now he transitions. But God, but God. Oh, by the way, I lost my point there. I want to get back to that before I transition to four. If you're a believer here and you want to share the gospel with somebody, what a great starting point. Guess what? You're lost. Guess what? You come from a religious background? You're still lost. You come from an irreligious background? 
You're still lost. We're all in that same boat unless we turn to Christ for grace. And that's why I love verse four. But God. What a great transition, right? Without God's grace, we're all lost. And then we have the transition. So God offers grace through faith. So you have this problem. We're all lost. Religious, irreligious. Everybody in the world's lost. But God. Now, it happens to be that literally those two words, but God, are at the very bottom of my page. And so I get to turn it over and see what God says. It's a good surprise. But God, being rich in mercy... On account of his great love which, with which he loved us. Isn't that great? So, big problem, bigger solution. God's mercy and love. Now, I know there's times we can get kind of over-technical sometimes when we define words. Okay, so the term mercy, I want us to think, we, we, I know grace something that we get that we don't deserve, right? And mercy is often defined as not getting what we do deserve. And that's kind of true, but it's not all of the truth. There's an element of compassion to the word mercy. There's an emotional component to mercy. It's not just that God, like a robot, said, oh, I will not give them something that they deserve. Right? It's God moving out of his love and his compassion, saying, I'm going to offer my own son so that these lost people can have access to my grace. And this is where it gets funny, and we'll talk about it the next time I get to speak here coming up in September. But Paul constantly throws these little side statements, like parenthetical statements, because he says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and he raised or excuse me, made you alive together with Christ. And then he throws in, by grace you have been saved. It's almost like he keeps trying to remind people that grace, it's grace, it's grace, it's grace. We'll talk more about that as we go along here. But. So he says this, and though we were dead in our trespasses, he, ra- uh, he made us alive together with him, with Christ. Again, notice the past tense here. So this is talking about believers. But by extension, we can say, look, if you are an unbeliever and you sense your need and you realize that either religious or irreligious, you need God, he's got grace to offer you. Although you are dead in your trespasses and sins, he can raise you up with Christ so the raise you up or make you alive there is the sense of that first word. And then he's going to say, for by grace you have been saved. And he's going to raise you together with him. Now this is a reference to Jesus was raised and ascended to heaven. And then notice what he says here. What psalm does this refer to, by the way, if you were here last week? Look what he says. And he seated you at, together with him in the heavenly places. Does that sound like Psalm 110 a little bit? God raised Jesus from the dead, brought him up to heaven. He ascends. He seats him at the right hand of the Father, ruling over his church until the day that God makes the enemies 
his footstool until he returns and makes everything right. And he says, as believers, we have been made alive with Jesus, the same way that Jesus was made alive. We've ascended spiritually somehow with Jesus, and we're seated in the heavenly places with him. Theologians talk about this as our position in Christ, that we are in Christ. There's this spiritual unity that we have in Christ. And that spiritual unity both is a guarantee of benefit now and future benefit. Next time you're tempted to think you've got a bad, remember, you were raised with Christ, you were ascended with Christ, and you were seated with Christ at the right hand in the heavenly places. Verse 7. We're going to come back to this, but I want to hit it because it's in order. Now, he did this in order that in the age to come. Anybody remember the age to come from last week? Remember, we, leave, we live in this kind of overlapping present evil age. When Jesus returns, we're going to enter into the age to come. So in that age to come, he saved us so that, so that what? We might be to the praise of his glory. In order that we might show in this coming age the surpassing richness of his grace with which he showered us in Christ. So we'll talk more about that in a minute, but there's a purpose to our salvation. This is one of the two that he mentions in this text. Now comes the two most famous verses probably from this section, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. He says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not by works, in order that no one should boast, or lest anyone should boast. That means the same thing. One's old language, one's new language. So that no one will boast. If you work for your salvation, is it a gift? Guess that? Let me just say it, not ask it. If you work for your salvation, it's not a gift. It's not grace. It's not a kindness. It's not mercy. It's your wage. It's what you've earned. What does this text expressly say? You've been saved by grace for the express purpose of keeping you from boasting. So that no one might boast. There are many, many people who think that they're earning their way to God. Well, if I looked at my life and I balanced off the good and the bad, I think I would do okay. I think God would be nice to me. He's loving, right? Sadly, that's just not what the text says. 
God calls us to be agents of his grace so that we can share the joyful news that salvation is by grace through faith. It's a gift. It's a gift. And that keeps us from boasting. Now that phrase is going to come back the next time we talk about this passage again and hard. But for now, let's think about sharing the gospel. When we share the gospel, this is probably the clearest, simplest text to go to to help people see, hey, this is, this is not something that you get to boast about. And, and let me just suggest, and this is Dave's opinion, this is not. But I think probably what makes salvation by grace through faith so hard for some is it means giving up my pride. When you came to faith in Jesus, you had to submit to God, humbly acknowledging the fact that you couldn't do it yourself, that you weren't a good person. When I came to Jesus, I had to humbly acknowledge that my sin grieved God and that I couldn't do it on my own. And that's humbling. And that's humbling. I'm sure there are some of us who have stories of people that we know that, would th- that think, I just, you know what? I don't think I need grace. I just, I think I'm good enough on my own. So salvation by grace through faith. Titus 3.5 says this, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but by his great mercy. He saved us by the washing of regeneration, by the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Salvation is by grace through faith. If you're here today and you know, don't know Jesus, we want to invite you today to humble yourself before God and admit that you can't do it on your, on your own. That you would repent and believe that Jesus is your savior and can save you by grace from your sins and to place your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you're a believer, that's the joyful message that we get to share. That's the joyful message that we get to share. So God offers grace through faith. So what's God's purpose in showing this grace? Well, there's two verses that talk about it. Verse seven, we already talked about that a little bit. But in the age to come, that he might show his surpassing richness of his grace. This one bothered me a long time because I was like, why am I bragging about God? Right? Why? It sounded kind of egotistical. If I went around asking people to talk about me, that would feel egotistical. And I think C.S. Lewis helps us out with this because he came back from a symphony orchestra one time and he was praising that symphony orchestra to a friend. And he realized how pleasurable it was to extol the virtue of that symphony orchestra. That giving praise to praiseworthy things is actually pleasurable. And I, like, I'm a volleyball coach, so I love talking about a great play. 
right? Maybe you're a football fan. You probably love talking about a great play. If you love dramatics and drama and movies and plays, you probably went and saw a play on Broadway once and you came back and you were just raving about it. And that gave you a sense of pleasure. And there's this beauty that God's created this order where when we praise God, it actually gives us pleasure. But ultimately... It's because God is praiseworthy. And what greater thing that we could do for eternity but to share stories with each other and share stories back to God about how God gave us grace. So that's one of the purposes, this eternal storytelling and praising that's going to happen. But in verse 10, he says this, for we are his work product. We're his work product. That is to say, that sounds too engineering. We are his workmanship. More like an artisan that carves something that's beautiful. We are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for, for what? For what? For good works. And not only has he made us to do good works, he's prepared them ahead of time for us to do. He's created opportunities that we're going to walk in tomorrow where we can reveal the fact that we are God's workmanship, that we're God's piece of art. There's joy in holiness. There's great joy in learning to live life God's way. It's not a chore. His way is light. His yoke is easy. There's great joy. And I would pray that I would learn the joy of living holy and living service in my life. To live in a holy way and to live in service. And to learn the joy of that. Because think about it. We become, when we become God's child, he is literally shaping us into the image of Christ. How cool is that? And there's great joy in that. And yes, there's times when it's a struggle. But coming out of the other side, there's even greater joy through that struggle. So the purpose in salvation is for us to continue walking in this life, submitting to God and his ways, and learning to become his workmanship. And walking in the good works that he's prepared for us ahead of time. So that changes every day for me. Because when I go into work, I have to be asking myself the question, what are the good works that God has created for me to do? What opportunity do I have to live out the gospel in my life today so that I can share that message tomorrow? So let's kind of bring this home. So if you're here, you don't know Jesus, we want you to know Jesus. We want you to experience God's grace. And we would invite you to do that, to submit yourself to Jesus, to repent and believe. And if God's convicting and drawing you today, we want to speak with you afterwards. We would love to speak with you or speak with someone who brought you or someone you know from the church. 
We would love to share more and, and help you get started in your life of faith. For those of us who are believers and maybe have been for a while, how much of our life is dedicated to living out that grace and looking for the things that God's prepared beforehand for us to walk in? It's amazing when you start looking for opportunities, they will pop up. Stuff that you never thought was an opportunity, you will see it because you're looking for it. Let me challenge you. How many of you, and this is not to make you feel guilty, it's to spur you forward. How many of you have at least one person right now that you're praying for who needs Jesus? Let me challenge you to do that. Have at least one person in your life that you know who's not a believer and start praying for them. And it's amazing if you're looking for those good works to walk in and if you're praying for that person, you're going to find that there are abundant opportunities for you to share your faith with them. So have that one person that you're praying for. Our staff has been doing a great job of planning opportunities for you to invite that one person that you're praying for. The next thing I would challenge you to think about is our fall kickoff. I believe it's September 11th. What a great opportunity for you to invite that one person that you're praying for to come so that you can share the, your faith with them. Because it, there's two, it seems to me that there's two main ways that people come to Jesus. And this is, I think, from the scriptures. It's from our personal testimony to them in a relationship and them seeing other believers interrelate with each other. Right? They will know that we are Christians by our, by our love. And so giving opportunities, our staff is building in these opportunities for us to invite people to come join us and see how we as a body of believers relate to each other. What a great opportunity for us to invite that one person that we're praying for. And then the last point for today, application. Are you taking joy in spiritual growth? Are you finding joy in seeing what the next thing that God wants you to work on in your life is and watching God knock off that rough edge and then go, wow, that was a little bit painful, but thank you, Lord. And what's that next thing? What is the, what is the good work that I can be doing tomorrow that he's prepared ahead of time for me to walk in? What a great text, right? What a great text. What a great challenge for me. What a great challenge for all of us. My prayer is that we would go forward always remembering the gospel. That is to say that God's grace comes to us, God's salvation, excuse me, comes to us by grace through faith. Let's pray. Father, we look at this text, we read it so often and it's it's our tendency to just skip over it because frankly we've read it a thousand times before. I pray that you'll never let us do that. Help us to be in love with your gospel. Help us to be in love with you. Lord, help us to follow you daily. Help us to look for those opportunities that you give us, that you've prepared ahead of time for us, for us to walk in them. 
I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.